studying today. Um, I'm reminded, I hope you're reminded every Christmas, that Jesus is the joy of every heart that is longing for anything. He is the joy of our longing hearts. He is the gift under the metaphorical Christmas tree of life, whether you know you need him or not. He's the prize of our life, of our joy, of our longing. And you're going to hear a story today from Luke chapter 2 that I think Charles Wesley, when he wrote that hymn, had to have been reading in his devotional time. Uh, In our fast-paced world, we are not often accustomed to waiting much anymore. Uh, We've been forced to wait a lot with the, quote, supply chain issues. Uh, But if anything, this has reminded us of how unaccustomed we are to waiting. Uh, There was a time when the Pony Express was really something. That was fast shipping. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, boom, Amazon Prime, two-day delivery. There was nothing in between. It went right from Pony Express, kids, to Amazon two-day prime shipping. Um, and so now we're on to one-day shipping. You can get places, I think San Antonio is one of those places where you can do the one-day. Some places you got drones dropping stuff, and you, know, and, and you can get some cold milk on your doorstep within a couple hours. I mean, we're moving. Things are fast. Meals on Wheels used to be mostly about getting senior adults, a TV dinner who can't leave their home but would like to. Now Meals on Wheels is DoorDash and Grubhub and Uber Eats uh, choosing to bring your food to your door because you don't want to leave your house. Uh, We used to wait for favorite TV shows and movies to come on TV. I know this is going to be a shock to some of you kids. There was a paper book called The TV Guide. All right, and they would mail it to you, and you, it'd be this thick. And you could see all the shows that were coming on that week. And uh, if you wanted to know what was coming on, you would check the TV guide. Then eventually they put it on the TV, where you had the TV guide channel, and that thing would scroll at a snail's pace. And you would just watch the ticker move. And you're just waiting, you know. And surely enough, the show you wanted was on, like, channel 77. And when you tuned in, it was on channel 2 at the time. And so you're just... You're just Uh, You know, 45 minutes later, you finally get to see what show is coming on. But kids today, you can't imagine what it was like to know that the movie you wanted to watch, the only way to watch it was to tune in to NBC at 8 p.m. on Friday, and it's Monday when you find out about it. And there's commercials in it. So you just, it's a whole different world. There are moments in life where we are reminded some things just cannot be rushed. I know cooking and baking happens a lot over the holidays. How many of y'all baked something this week? Anybody? Put something in the oven? All right. Those are moments of life where you realize you, you just can't hurry up things, right? If I said to you, get me a cake in two minutes from scratch, go. You'd say, there's no way. It cannot be done. There's just a certain amount of time. Now, if I said, but put it in the oven at 1,000, 10,000 degrees, surely that would speed up the process. You say, no, it doesn't work like that. It takes what it takes. You got to let the process play out. Same thing with having a baby, by the way. It takes nine months. You can shout at the stomach all you want. Let's get this show on the road, but it just ain't going to happen, right? It takes what it takes. I was reminded earlier um, uh, this week of the value of, of time and waiting on something to happen. Uh, I'm a sports guy. I do like to watch uh, football and basketball. And so Stephen Curry broke a sports record this week, the most three-pointers made in NBA history. And that's a pretty important record. It's, it's probably like a second-tier record in the sports world. Um, but I think sports records illustrate something to us as well. Uh, 
the amount of time and persistence it takes to set an NBA sports record. I mean, think about these records. Most points in NBA history. It took Kareem Abdul-Jabbar 20 seasons to set that record. Uh, the most home runs all time in Major League Baseball. Barry Bonds took him an awful long time to pass up Hammer and Hank, right? Or the most decorated Olympic athlete of all time. Who was that? Michael Phelps. That's right. Took an awful lot of time to break that record. You don't just decide one day to wake up and break a record like that. These take consistency, training, and longing. A lot of longing. You know, anytime someone gets close to breaking one of those famous records, the world kind of stops for a second, right? And we, people that don't even watch sports may tune in to watch that. You, if you knew Barry Bonds was about to pass Hank Aaron, you would tune into that. I didn't watch baseball. I never watched baseball. But I tuned, I tuned in that time and watched because you want to see it happen. Five homers to go, three to go. Is this the one? And every at-bat, you're waiting for that moment. And then sure enough, one day, bah, there it is over the left outfield wall. It's gone. Then comes the celebration. The joy of the longing heart is complete. Today, we'll see a little picture of this through the eyes of a man named Simeon, that receiving Jesus was the joy and culmination of everything he had been waiting for. And Jesus is, for all of us, still the joy of our longing hearts even today. Seeing the Christ child was what he was waiting on. It was what he was watching for. And perhaps we can tap into that joy and examine how hope and expectation can play a role in our lives, especially around Christmas time. So before we look at God's word, please pray with me. Lord, would you help us as we look at your word today, your holy inspired word, Lord, that this story was captured for us to learn something from it. So Lord, would you have us Learn something about your hope, your peace, the joy of a heart that longs to see you. Maybe learn from Simeon's example today. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles to Luke 2, 22. We're not in any particular series. I just like this text. I want to preach it. Uh, Luke's gospel contains one of the two major birth narratives in Scripture. Uh, the other is in Matthew. And so as for a context of where we are, uh, we're jumping in after Jesus has been born. So Jesus is already born at this part of the story. He's a couple of weeks old, meaning the shepherds have visited, but the wise men have not. So we're in the gap between those two visits. And as with any uh, infant, as Jesus was at this stage, his parents are primarily the actors in the story. So you see a lot of Mary and Joseph early on in the Gospels where you really don't see them much later. The setting is changing in the story from the birth, which happened in Bethlehem, to six miles north to Jerusalem, and you'll see why. So let's read Luke 2.22 today. It says, And when the time came for their purification, that's the whole family there, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that is Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. 
All right, so this is the first part of our story. The first thing I'd like to see as we set this context up is that you notice the obedience of faithful parents. That's number one. You see the obedience of faithful parents. A lot of family time around the holidays, so I thought this might be a nice little starter point for us. It bears mentioning once in a while that Mary and Joseph were Jews. Jesus was Jewish. All right? Sometimes we forget that, but that's the case. They were Israelite by birth and, more importantly, by conviction. And they raised their son Jesus in the same way. Verse 21, immediately preceding what we just read, gives actually two Uh, initial marks of obedience that they participated in. First, they had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day, commanded of all Israelite boys. That comes from Leviticus 12.3. And this immediately identified their son with the physical mark of their covenant people. We also read in verse 21, they followed through on naming him what they were commanded to name him, Jesus, as the angel had told them. Now, you can imagine if you had some rebellious parents And uh, you might have ended up with a savior named Curly or Throgmorton or Rutherford. So good thing they followed through on what they were supposed to, right? But in everything we see of Mary and Joseph in Scripture, I want you to notice it's always honorable. Anytime Mary and Joseph are presented in Scripture, it's always in obedience to God. I can think um, of the the character that Joseph would have had to have uh, to be told by an angel, your wife is pregnant. Don't worry, though. It's from the Lord. I mean, you got to be a high character guy to say, yeah, okay, I'm with you. Carry on. I mean, that's a big deal, right? That's a really big deal. But Joseph trusted the Lord in everything. Well, this story starts out no differently. It continues the theme that they were obedient to the Lord. Verse 22 says, when the time came for what? Well, In the law of Moses, they had little stages built into life that you were kind of following these patterns. Uh, They had participated in circumcision on the eighth day, and now it was time for the next thing. Well, what's the next thing? Around the 40th day of life, the first male child that opened the womb would be brought to the temple for a special ceremony of thanksgiving and dedication to the Lord. Now you say, why why is it a first male child? Well, probably this comes from Exodus 13. And so the immediate context of that was the devastating opposite uh, plague done to Egypt, where the firstborn was taken by God in the, in the land of Egypt. And so this was sort of an opposite procedure done when they got across the Red Sea. The other reason that they were coming to the temple was that there was a ceremonial offering that women would participate in after their childbirth. Again, Leviticus 12 gives the template for this happening. Uh, The process of childbirth was something that made you ceremonially unclean in Israel, probably because there's just a lot of blood and, and, and fluids, and it's a fun time, you guys know. And so the mother would come and offer a sacrifice at the Nicanor Gate at the temple, for her purification to be considered ceremonially clean after giving birth. Now, the offering made by Mary and Joseph in verse 24 tells us something about them. We learn a little something by their offering. First of all, they bring turtle doves and pigeons as their offering. Well, why? Well, the the Jewish reader would know exactly why. It's that they could not afford a lamb. If you could afford a lamb, you would bring a lamb. 
In Leviticus 12, the offering was a young lamb of one year old. However, it says if you're unable to afford that, which that's a hefty price. I've never bought a lamb or a cow or anything, but I'd imagine it's a hefty buy. If you can't, then they would allow you to bring doves or pigeons as your offering to the temple. It was kind of like a graduated tax bracket there. So, um, you know, Mary and Joseph were, were not wealthy people. They were not known as high rollers, you know, and um, there's no shame in bringing the, these offerings to the temple, but we do learn something about them that the family in which our Lord Jesus was raised was not one of nobility. It was not one of uh, where they had everything they need. I mean, my goodness, no room in the inn should tell you something right there, right? So they, they truly came from humble beginnings, and so after this, the reason why this part of the story is there to tell you why they're in the temple in the first place, because the man they're going to meet is in the temple. So this gets us to the temple. But before we move on, I just real quick, I want to soapbox for just a second. I think it's good to honor faithful, obedient parents. You know, their faith was not something just for social reasons. They saw what their role in Jesus' life as a God-given role to raise him up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so should we, parents, even today. You know what they didn't say? You know what they didn't say? They didn't say, well, when Jesus gets old enough, we'll decide, uh, we'll let him decide whether or not he wants to be Jewish. No. They said, this is my job. This is my responsibility. We are going to raise him in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. They did what parents do. They charted the course and led their children toward the Lord. They set a trajectory of life for pursuing God through faith and obedience, even in the early days. That was for free. That's the first thing. We have seen uh, faithful, obedient parents. The next thing we're gonna see is number two, really the main point here, is the description of a longing heart. The description of a longing heart. The story is about to shift to a man named Simeon. So we're going to look together at Luke 2.25. says this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Can you imagine getting that email? Whew. This is a very interesting man in, in the scriptures to me. Simeon is often pictured as an old man. Sometimes he's pictured as a priest, but we know, well, you just read it. There's nothing in there that gives his age or his job. Uh, we just know he's a man. And so there is a church tradition that he's 113 years old, but again, that's just tradition. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. And just because he's in the temple doesn't mean he's a priest Though, again, we're just guessing. What we do get from him is more important. It's a wonderful portrait of what a longing heart practically looks like. We often hear things like, wait on the Lord, right? Nice little Christian phrase. Put your hope in Christ. Well, Simeon is a case study for us to look at, for someone who did this. First, we see two words to describe this act of a man waiting and hoping we see descriptions of him, righteous and devout. Now, Romans 3.10 reminds us, I always like to say this, that there is no one righteous before the Lord. That, that means that 
mankind does not have an innate goodness we're born with. We are not innocent creatures, blank slates. Uh, we require a foreign, alien righteousness to be able to enter the kingdom of God that's provided by Christ, okay? That's what that means. However, there are times in the Bible, you've read the Bible, there are times in the Bible where it says, and Noah was a blameless man, or Simeon was a righteous man, and it'll say things like that. Now, that is never to insinuate that's a sinless person. That's never what they're trying to tell you. Uh, That doesn't mean they're even naturally a good person or that they somehow have no sin nature or something. No, none of that. It's a way to describe someone in terms that is seeking to live their lives to please the Lord. And everything they did, they ran it through the filter of how does this please God? Is my life a living sacrifice to God. And so you'll see those words in the Bible where someone's described as righteous. I just don't want you to think they're saying sinless. No, they're saying this is a man who earnestly tries to live for the approval of God. Another word in the Bible might be just. You might say this is a just man. Just and righteous can be flipped for one another. Secondly, we see he is a devout man. That's another word describing Simeon. The word devout means you're serious and passionate about your faith, about practicing your faith out in the world. We might use the word reverent. We might use the word pious. They all play in here. Simeon was a man who studied God's word. He prayed publicly and privately. You know, when we think of Daniel, yes, Daniel was bold, but he was also devout because when they said, stop praying, you know what he did? He opened the windows up because he he had to pray. He had to pray and he wanted people to see it. That's what being devout looks like. Simeon was at the temple. He came to the temple regularly. He ministered to people. That's what being devout means. He was not a Jew by his culture. He was not a Jew just because he grew up in a Jewish land. It was real to him. You know, many many are Christians in name only. You hear that in politics, right? Republican in name only, right? We talk about that. Well, sometimes people are Christian in name only. Because you're born in a culture that has rewarded identifying as Christian. By the way, that's changing. Those days are going to run out at some point. Uh, But perhaps there's social pressures. Perhaps there's family pressures. Perhaps uh, these are nice traditions. You like participating in the things related to Christmas and Easter. And you're part of the little system. It feels nice. Maybe it's just you want that generic moral code for your kids. And so it's just, yeah, we're Christians, you know, just sort of a blanket phrase. That's not what Simeon was described as. It was something that he would do whether he were the majority or the minority in the culture. I want you to think about that for your life too. Would you be a Christian if you were in the minority subculture? It's very comfortable when you're the majority. But what if you were the minority what if you, were, you and five of your friends were the only Christians you knew? What would that change about your spiritual life? Simeon was devout. He was righteous. And verse 25 says, he was waiting for what? What's that word? Start with the C. The consolation. Very good. The consolation of Israel. Before we unpack that phrase, let me say, let me go back. I've got a little good point here. If being righteous and devout are not priorities for you, 
you're, you can't be waiting on the Lord for anything, all right? Because that's a really good coffee cup phrase. And y'all, y'all know I like to unpack some of those things. I'm just waiting on the Lord. Well, if you're asking God for something, if you're hoping for something, if you're seeking God's will in some transitional season of life, and you're not doing so through the avenue of righteousness or devout following, you're not waiting on the Lord. You're, you're just waiting. See, we, we have a whole, a whole movement that says, declare it, name it, claim it, wait on your blessing to come to you. But if, again, if you're not doing so through the avenue of seeking after the Lord, there's nothing happening. When you're at the DMV, you're not waiting on the Lord, you're waiting in line. You know what I mean? If you're John Mayer singing, waiting on the world to change, you're not waiting on the Lord just because you're waiting on something. Not all waiting is waiting on the Lord. Now, Simeon was righteous and devout for the cause of Christ. What's the opposite of that? If we switch that around, what's the opposite? Sinful and apathetic is the opposite. If your life is marked by sin and apathy to the things of Christ, listen, that's step number one for you today. That's step number one. Jesus would say that we are to seek first, above all else, the kingdom and his righteousness, and then all the other things can get added later. We can talk about those things later. But if you do not seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, you don't need to be worrying about anything else. So Simeon had his heart and mind in the right place. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was looking forward to something. His mind was encapsulated and raptured by this topic. He thought about it all the time. He marinated. He meditated on it. The consolation of Israel, that's all he thought about. He got excited when he talked about it. He sang songs and psalms about it. When he read scriptures, he probably had a good, a good ugly cry just by himself when he was thinking about it. So what is he waiting for? What does this word mean? The parakalesis of Israel in the Greek. You know, John, I'm going to teach you guys a little Greek here. You know, when John called the Holy Spirit, he gave him a little title around John circa 15-ish. Remember what that title was? He called him the comforter. The comforter. If you take that Greek word, it's called paraclete. People love that word. If you take that word and make it into a state of being, it becomes parakalesis. So that's what Simeon is waiting for, the comfort of Israel, the comforter of Israel, the consolation of Israel. And we know this, you know when you console someone, what are you doing? You're comforting them. He longed for a day when things were different in Israel through the reign of a Messiah. Now we've been studying Mark for all the fall, and you know that messianic expectations were Largely military and political. That's what most people were expecting out of their Messiah. This is not what Simeon was longing for. He longs for the comfort of Israel. Listen to this Old Testament passage. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. That's Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Simeon longed for someone to come to end the hardship and to pardon the iniquity of the people. The consolation the people needed 
was the one who could come and bring pardon to sins of the people. And the very next verse in Isaiah 40 says, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. All these things work together. The voice of the herald crying for the Messiah. So listen and hear this. While the land of Israel was certainly full of people who got it wrong, and we study those all the time, they got the Messiah wrong, they read the Old Testament wrong, they wanted a military Messiah, all of these things, not everyone missed it. Not everyone. Simeon got it because he was waiting on it. He was waiting on the right things, the biblical things. His heart's desire was not primarily to launch a sword through the heart of Rome. It was that the hearts of the people would be returned to their God and iniquities would be pardoned. And he knew the Messiah would do this. How does he know this? Verse 25 tells us, it says, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was walking with the Lord, so he knew what to look for. That's a good life. That's a good sentence for you in your life. He or she was walking with the Lord, so they knew what to look for. Well, that'll take you places. And if you thought, by the way, the Holy Spirit didn't exist in the Bible until Acts, well, here he is, right here in the book of Luke, before Pentecost. He's all over Simeon. Verse 26 says, the Spirit had revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. You will not see death before you see the Christ. How was it revealed? I don't know. But Simeon knew. Sometime in his lifetime, he would lay eyes upon the comforter of Israel, the one to pardon their iniquity, the Messiah. This is what hoping in God and waiting on the Lord actually looks like. Righteous and devout. First, got to get those things down. Waiting on something that the scriptures affirm is actually coming. That's number three. Full of the Spirit is number four. And confident in the expectation of God's promise, number five. You do those five things, you're waiting on the Lord. He was longing for the Christ, and guess what? He's about to see him. We've seen the obedience of faithful parents. We've seen the description of a longing heart. Next, we see number three, the rejoicing of a promise kept. The rejoicing of a promise kept. The Spirit of God had made a promise to Simeon that he would see the Christ. Here he is, verse 27. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. This is a blessing spoken from Simeon to God while holding the Messiah. Think about that. Was this spontaneous? Was it prepared? I don't know. Simeon might have been sitting on this blessing for 50 years waiting on this moment. I don't really know. But somehow when this 40-day-old baby is brought in, he locks on and knows this is the guy. Now, we know there's nothing special about Jesus. There, he didn't 
No matter what art, artwork you, you look at from the Renaissance or from the Middle Ages, there's no little baby halo. You know, he's not glowing. Uh, he, he looks like a normal baby. So this had to be a miracle of the Holy Spirit to reveal to Simeon that this is the child. He's in the Spirit, it says, so we know that that's realistic. And God reveals to him he's seen the Christ. And so he approaches Mary and Joseph. Now, I know if it was me and our baby, we might have stiff-armed him and said, who are you, guy? You know, but apparently they, they, there was some trust there. So he comes up. Picks up the child, reads a prophetic blessing, and really in this blessing, I mean, it's an Advent sermon in itself. You've got joy, peace, and hope. In verse 29, Simeon says, Lord, you are letting your sermon, uh, your servant depart in peace according to your word. He says, God, you made a promise that I could see this child, and you delivered. You said I would not see death before I had seen the Christ, and now I can depart in peace. I can die now. Man, imagine, imagine that kind of peace. I know some people get to that peace later in life as they're sort of on their, their deathbed and, and someone who's been through a lot of uh, treatment and then you just kind of look at them and they say, you know what, I'm ready. I'm at peace. Imagine feeling that in the middle of your life. Now, we don't know how old Simeon was, but just imagine. I've seen him. God said this is my main thing. I've seen him. I'm good. I've seen the Christ. My faith has become sight. I've seen him whom I've longed for for years. Everything in my life has led to this moment. The Messiah, the comforter of Israel, the one who can purify and pardon for sins, I'm holding him. I'm holding him. I got him right here. This baby is the one. I mean, imagine that feeling. Verse 30 says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Isaiah 40 again which I believe is undergirding this text, says, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I have seen the saving one. I have seen the redeemer, the seed of woman who would crush the head, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Imagine holding a baby, looking at him and saying, I look upon my very salvation. I hold my salvation in my hands. And then in verse 31, this man who seemingly has been focused on the consolation of Israel and what Jesus will do for Israel, the sheep of God's fold, says he will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This blessing from Simeon quickly takes a missionary focus. Through the Spirit, he knew that the scope of Jesus' work would not be just for Israel, and praise God it's not, because you're here today. But rather it would go to the ends of the earth where God's revelation was not currently made known. The Messiah's reach would go further than any traveling prophets of Judaism would ever go. You see, Israel had the revelation of God, but they awaited the glory of the manifestation of his arrival. The Gentiles didn't have the revelation of God at their fingertips. They didn't have the Old Testament, the prophets, the priests, the temples, the types and shadows and sacrifices. But in Christ, they would get all of it bundled up, packaged up. Boom, you got it all in Christ. And here in December, in the middle of December, Lottie Moon Christmas month, I would be remiss if I did not mention that the light of the revelation of the gospel is still going out to dark places all over the world. 
Simeon's prayer is still being fulfilled as the truth of Christ goes out to the unreached places of the earth. In fact, I'm just going to reiterate some things. Our church is in partnership with missionaries in Maharashtra and Jharkhand, two states in the nation of India, where the average percentage of Christians nationwide is about 2%. Jesus can be a light of revelation for the people of Maharashtra and Jharkhand if we pray and if we send and if we go. We have one specific unreached people group that we emphasize here at Calvary Hills. It is the Chaturtha people. C-H-A-T-U-R-T-H-A. Their religion is Jain. They live in Maharashtra. Their language is primarily Marathi. We think there's somewhere between 250 and 300,000 in the specific area we're looking at, though there are over a million Marathi Jains. The Chaturtha people in India primarily work in the field of agriculture, and we have been told that there are no known Christians in this people group at all, at all. That's darkness. Now, there have been some discussions lately that they think they might know one, one Christian. Jesus can be a light of revelation to the Chaturtha people if we pray and if we send and if we go. And Jesus can be a light of revelation in the darkness of your heart as well, for your life as well. I'd like to return to those song lyrics, Charles Wesley's hymn. And you tell me that Wesley wasn't reading Luke 2 when he wrote this song. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. As you scan the horizon of your life, is a closer walk with Jesus the joy of your longing heart? Is it what you wait on? Is it what you marinate on and meditate on? And is it what captures the thrill of your soul? I believe receiving Jesus is the joy of every longing heart, everyone longing for something more, something beyond where they're at. He is the fulfillment of our hope. He is the source of our joy. He is the giver of our peace. He is our strength. He is our comfort. And he is the desire of every nation, whether they know it or not. And you can know the one who gives these things freely. Your heart longs for joy. I know it does. And whether you know it or not today, following and serving and worshiping Jesus is that joy. He is the joy of every single longing heart. Pray with me.